Welcome to God's Word Community Church Sermon Broadcast. The books of Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, are so special because they show us what a truly good church looks like. We hope you enjoy the kind of meaty, spiritual food from God's Word that we offer here at GWCC. This is our first ever audio work for God's Word Community Church. I feel like uh, for posterity, I should stamp this audio cast. So if anybody ever listens to this, they'll know, you know, find it under a pyramid somewhere. They'll know where it came from. November 2nd, year of our Lord, 2014. Here in beautiful downtown Glen Burnie, Maryland, the tourist mecca of Maryland. We are preaching through letters of the New Testament that specifically relate to New Testament churches. And the reason that we are doing that is because we have as our goal the desire to recover the original experience of the New Testament church as it was founded by Jesus and the apostles. We do that, we have to remember that that pride can slip into this project where we can start talking about the New Testament church as something that we've accomplished that we've discovered, that we've found it. We have to be very, very careful with that kind of language because we can end up feeling proud in contrast to the other believers of the world. And that's, that's not our goal. Our goal is to try to find that original model so that we can walk with Jesus in his lordship, so that we can walk following Jesus with one another and have a body life among ourselves, which is more like the body life of the original New Testament church. So when you say, I want to be like the New Testament church, somebody could ask the question, well, which one do you mean? Because they were pretty radically different from place to place. The problems in one church were pretty radically different from the problems in another church. We just finished going through in several weeks the book of Galatians, and it is the Apostle Paul's angriest letter. He is angrier in Galatians even than in 1 Corinthians where they had many, many issues. But Paul was infuriated by the fact that the Christians had allowed legalistic tradition, legalistic religion to come in and attach itself to the gospel like barnacles onto the edge of a ship. Paul was furious that the people had left the gospel of Jesus only, Jesus alone, the sacrifice of Jesus alone for our sins as the foundation for our salvation, and had begun to make all kinds of other bullet lists to identify themselves as Christians. When we move from Galatians, probably his first letter, to 1 Thessalonians, probably his second letter, we see a radical contrast in the churches. Where you have a legalistic, controlling Galatian church that has lost the liberty of the gospel, at Thessalonica in Greece, or close to Greece, it's actually in a region above Greece that has typically been referred to as Macedonia. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but Macedonia as a state has begun to exist again uh, following the years that the Soviet Union was taken back apart again. The Soviet Union uh, ended and the Iron Curtain basically is no more, now Macedonia has re-emerged as a state in our time, as a nation in our time. Thessalonica, when we read chapter 1, which we did last week, we read about a church that was strong in faith, 
strong in love one for another, and they really picked up the process of discipleship. They did an excellent job of it. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had lived among them for a period of time after going through some hard times at the city of Philippi. They come to Thessalonica after being basically chased out of Philippi. They lived among the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians learned what it meant to be Christians from watching Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And then they lived that life out. And in living that life out, they became models to other Christians in Greece. And they did it so well that they had a reputation of faith and love that just went ahead of them. And boy, when you read this book, you know, you can't help but say, man, that's the church I want to be in. That's where I want to go. That's what I want my church to be like. And, you know, it's funny. We still haven't come to the part where Paul tells us why he's writing. (laughs) The whole first chapter, he's described them and their history with him and how they've lived out their faith, and that it's an extremely commendable faith. When we get into chapter 2, and that's where I'm going to invite you to turn right now, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to find a passage which for the first time in my life, I have recognized as a focus on church leadership. To me, that's a major discovery. What should Christian leaders be like? That's a way for you to evaluate the leadership of your own church. But it's also a way for you to say, as I continue to mature, as you continue to mature, and God uses you in leadership more and more and more in the body of Christ, how ought you to be? How should you live out that leadership? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you will find the attitudes of leadership. You will find particular actions of leadership. You will find what their relationship should be like with the people of the church. And what's so funny is that it is so mild, it is so pleasant, that I don't think I ever recognized it as a focus on leadership before the work that we've done for our church. Most of the time when people preach on leadership, in modern churches, you turn immediately to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and start going down what are the qualifications for elders and deacons. It's very funny. We talk about the qualifications before we ever talk about what the function is. What are these jobs supposed to do? Well, in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, the same apostle tells us that the job of the leadership of the church is to equip God's people for their own works of ministry. For the calling that, why did God call you? Yes, to salvation. But beyond that, I mean, that was your birth. After we're born, there's a life for us to live. There's an occupation for us to walk in. There's a journey for us to to be in. Talents to use. That's all part of your calling. And the job of the leadership of the church is to help equip you for that calling. Whatever that calling is. Now, when it comes to what style of leadership, what should the personality be like of that leadership, I love to start with people in John chapter 10, where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And you can see in his description of the good shepherd some very distinctive things about what leadership of a flock should be like. He would lay down his life for his flock. Rather than allow his flock to be damaged 
or harmed by an enemy. He would put his own life on the line to protect it. One thing that Jesus says there that I often find missing in modern churches is he says, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. In fact, Jesus says, they won't follow a stranger. And so how many times have we seen churches where people didn't even know who the leaders were or what the leaders did? One of the things, if, if God blesses us so that we grow, one of the things that we have to grow into is we have to keep multiplying our leadership. That's the purpose of discipleship, right? We have to keep multiplying the leadership so that there are always shepherds who know the sheep that are being cared for and the sheep know those shepherds. So we end up with a string of relationships all the way through our church where every single person in the church is being discipled by somebody and they are discipling someone else. That should be going on in every single life. Who are you discipling and who are you learning from? Who is it that's setting the pattern for you? Jesus warns that the sheep will not follow a stranger. And you can see why when I try to teach churches about leadership, I always have to start there. Because one of the things that so often happens in churches is that leadership just turns into an office, a title, a position. And the connection with the flock or its ministries, the services of the church, disappears. And you very often won't even find the leaders involved in those services. But I think next, from now on, I'm going to take people to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at where Paul starts here. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That is, that it could have been empty. We could have come to you and nothing good come of it. But you can see that our coming to you brought forth fruit. I think he's reminding them how God's hand is involved in all that they're doing. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Two things that we have to take away from this. One is that our standing strong in our faith, our becoming strong in our faith, our becoming clear and bold in our faith, confident in our faith, there are and have always been consequences for that. For some reason in our world, there is a, a force of evil that automatically raises up to resist the movement of the gospel. It's always been here. And it will likely always be here until Jesus comes again. Paul and Timothy experienced conflict in Philippi. Paul and Silas ended up in jail together because they healed someone. And it's hard to understand that a riot could start because someone was healed, but it landed them in jail. And as they started a brand new church, it began as a little women's Bible study by, by a riverside. Eventually, the conservative Jewish Christians found out about it and came and tried to lay down their legalism again, and they ended up creating more riot, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy were all driven out. So the first thing for us to remember is that Jesus has never caused us to a thing where when we do it, 
everybody will applaud. Usually there will be resistance. Usually there will be people that will be offended with you just because you're trying to do the right thing. And it seems very strange, no matter how harmless you make yourself, that people will be offended by it. And they'll begin to tell you why you're doing what you're doing. Oh, you think you're better than somebody else. Really? What was it that I said that gave you that impression? Eventually it'll come down to you're not doing the same things that they're doing. And it's funny, they they can feel that instantly as an indictment. We had boldness. I want you to notice here that Paul does not ask God, please protect us. We ran into so much trouble in Asia Minor. We ran into so much trouble in Galatia. We ran into so much trouble in Philippi. Please protect us from running into any more trouble. No. These early Christians are nuts. And after they get into trouble, they pray to God that they would be bold. That they would be clear about the gospel as they should. Isn't that amazing? For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Now from verse 3 all the way through verse 7, you're going to find a list, one right after the other, where Paul expresses the attitudes that the gospel doesn't come from. This is where our desire to lead shouldn't come from. All right. In psychology, psychologists have been distinguishing since the 60s between what they call extrinsic motives and intrinsic motives. Intrinsic motives are when you are connected to your religion because you actually like God. You actually love Him. You'd actually like to be changed by Him. You believe in what's being said. You would actually like to be changed by Him. You actually believe in the work that He calls you to do. Extrinsic motives are those where I'm participating in this whole religious thing because of what I can get out of it. Maybe I'm a salesman and I find most of my customers here in my church. There are lots of different reasons that somebody can end up being in church. Certainly many different reasons they can end up in leadership in a church. And some of those leadership reasons are extrinsic. And that's a little scary. Psychologists have never been able to understand what to do with religious people. Because some religious people are more prejudiced than normal people, are more neurotic, are less resilient, are more mean-spirited. How does that happen? Other religious people are more loving, more altruistic, less prejudiced, more resilient, able to go through all kinds of things, and the religion actually seems to work for them. What's the difference? Well, the funny thing is, in psychological testing, even the secular psychologists have been able to figure out that people with extrinsic motives for being in their religion tend to end up correlated with all of the bad things that religion can produce. Those who are actually intrinsically driven from the grace and the faith of the gospel actually get associated with the positives of the gospel. And so one of the things that you're going to see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I've couched what I've explained to you in psychological terms, contemporary with our time. But of course, Paul is going to express it in the language that he speaks in from a long time ago, and we all resonate with it. For our appeal does not spring from error 
I'm not telling you something that there's been a huge mistake. It is not spring from impurity. I'm not trying to find some, is there some kind of mixed motive why I'm in this community doing what I'm doing? It does not spring from any attempt to deceive. Now you think about a movement like Jimmy Jones's People's Temple years ago, all those poor folks starting in California, and then eventually Guyana, and they all died because of the cyanide communion service. There was a powerful desire in Jones to deceive that fellowship. And it's funny because while they were in California, they did some pretty interesting ministries in their region. They, they did some good works. But the underneath wasn't solid. It wasn't whole. It wasn't pure. It was evil. And it ended up serving his very extrinsic motives. It does not spring from any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God be entrusted with the gospel so we speak now there is a word that is one of my favorite words in the original new testament and you will find it in james chapter 1 verse 3 i'm going to put it up on the board here it's the word dokimazo Dokimazo is a verb, which means I test. And it's funny because it's also connected with the idea of proving. How does that work? Well, if you take the word all the way back to its furthest roots, it's ac it actually refers to a crucible. I don't know how many of you know what a crucible is. Some of us went to physics classes in high school where they gave us little ceramic dishes that we had to hold with tongs over a Bunsen burner. And it was made of ceramic because it's going to get super, super hot as you hold it over that gas fire. Eventually, a crucible will even glow as you continue to heat it. Now, if you put an ore in that crucible, like a gold ore if you're that lucky, what will happen as that gold ore gets hit with flame that's that intense is that the gold will drain out of the dirt and form an almost pure puddle in the bottom of that crucible. And around the edge of the crucible, you'll have all of this dirt around the edge. You can separate gold from, from ore using flame. And of course, it does two things. You've tested the ore. You've found out that it's real gold because now you've got a puddle of gold in the bottom of the dish. And you've proven it. You've proven what it is. When you think about the hardships of your life, that's why James says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because the dokimazo, the crucible of your faith, crucibles are probably not a lot of fun for the ore that's in the dish. But there's a way in which the faith casts off the impurities and the dirt by what it goes through. And what's left is pure gold. Consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith produces hupomone, endurance, perseverance that doesn't quit. I want you to notice that Paul, as a leader in God's church, says that God tested us. Approved by God. That's dokimazo is in the language here. And one of the things that we have to remember 
is that God is watching, you know? He's testing our motives. He's testing why we do what we're doing. Do, do we use our church to medicate ourselves? Do we use our church because we have a need for influence over others? What is the purpose? Or can we burn it all down to that pure sense that we really want to see Jesus Christ served as Lord? That's the gold. That's the real stuff, not the dirt on the side. And so one of the things that a leader in God's church can't ever forget is that God is near. God is watching. Some of you I've talked to about how Mary Ann and I made it through the 15 months that we dated and kept our commitment to celibacy while we were dating. And it was that sense that I kept in my mind that she was like the Ark of the Covenant. She was like God's own daughter. And unless I want to be like that poor guy that tried to stabilize the ark and got struck dead, I got to remember that this woman, she's, God is her daddy. You know, I come over to the house to date his little girl. He's sitting there polishing his 357 divine magnum, Holy Spirit shooter of divine awesomeness. And he's polishing this pistol and saying, this is my little girl means a lot to me you know if a dad says that while he's polishing a revolver it's really important to pay attention that's we need to have a sense that god is close by and that there's some places where we really need to exercise a concern for his presence just as we have been approved by god to be entrusted with the gospel the gospel is a trust you now have been entrusted with it. Guess what? All of you in this room, you have something that belongs to somebody else. Are you aware of that? Just the fact that we went through the Lord's Supper in our confession service, you've already heard the gospel again. Remember Paul, when he talked about that, said, I am under obligation because of the gospel to declare it both to the Jew and to the Greek. I am under obligation i have what belongs to others to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak notice this not to please man but to please god who does what he tests our hearts he puts our hearts in the crucible he tests what they're made of one of the most obvious traps that we can fall into in church work is sliding from that focus on pleasing God, what is it that God has called us to do? To pleasing human beings. So that we set up everything that we do to make human beings happy. It's really, really important in our work to remember who's leading the dance. Who's defining the nature of the ministry. Who is setting the steps and the agenda for us. For we never came with words of flattery, Jesus wasn't much of a flatterer, was he? People always wanted to come to him on their own agenda, and he's like reminding them, you know what? I'm not buying any four-star rooms tonight. I don't happen to know right now where I'm sleeping. Now, if you're thrilled about that kind of a ministry, you come right along. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. I'm here to get from you what I can get. That would be an extrinsic motive, wouldn't it? 
God is witness. You see over and over again these statements, these leaders of God have this constant sense, yes, they love God, yes, they are drawn to Jesus Christ, yes, they want to see Him, but they also know that God is there measuring their actions and the intentions of their heart. And that's something a leader can't lose. Leader in the church needs to know that everything that he does is being tested by the Father. It's important. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I want you to notice here the restrained use of power. It's been a funny thing in ministry over the years. Somehow people have gotten this very, very heavy idea of the authority of the pastor. And I don't know where all of that authority of the pastor, I don't know how people get that taught to them. But it's always struck me as a strange and unusual thing. I, when I look at the Apostle Paul, the most effective of all of Jesus' apostles, the use of power that we see in him over and over and over again is restraint, using as little as possible. And that's another thing that leaders in a church have to remember. You know, the only, the only appropriate power that we have is persuasion is to try to inspire and to motivate. We can pray, right? But those are the only appropriate means that we have. To try to press somebody into doing something without having won their hearts is really very fruitless. One of my favorite non-biblical cliches is a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. I love that little rhyme, and I think it's very true. What good is it for me to twist someone's arm, or for you to twist someone's arm? Folks need to be drawn. They need to be inspired. They need to be motivated. They need to make their own decision whether they want to follow or not follow. Once you have delivered the message, you've delivered the message. And now your part of it is done. Except to keep encouraging, keep being available. Notice that he says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I was a little shocked when I read this. Three apostolic leaders coming to a church, looking at themselves as a mom. Wow, okay. Like a nursing mother, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It's a powerful image of leadership, isn't it? And if you take church leadership that you've seen in the past and you put it next to this, what do you see? Has <laughs> it is a direction for us as to which way we can go. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, notice that leadership in church should cultivate affection. We don't have 100% control of that, you know. You know what it's like. Some people are easier for us to like than others, right? Sometimes it feels like liking or not liking different kinds of food, right? You know, some of you don't like liver just because it's liver. And aren't there, aren't there people that we bump into that rub our fur the wrong way? And yet, 
if we're following Jesus, if we're working together, if we're willing to work not to stab each other in the back or on the occasions that we do, we work hard to clean up and reconcile, over time you can actually create affection where affection was not natural. And that's part of the goal of our assembly. Before we get out of the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to encourage us to that very special love called Philadelphia. And that doesn't mean a passion for the eagles, right? (laughs) No? (laughs) Cream cheese. Philadelphia is this brotherly bonding that we have for each other because we find something wonderful in one another. We desired you like our own children. We developed affection for you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also what? You see it there? Our own selves. The gospel is a place where we begin to open ourselves up, where we begin to share. My stepson didn't know it was Sunday morning worship time. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So I want you to notice that in these first verses here, 3 through 6 or 3 through 7, you're seeing here attitudes that we shouldn't have when we work in leadership in the church. And now we've just started to turn to that place where we're seeing the kind of attitudes that ought to be had. You notice this sense of affection, this sense of bonding. I have to tell you, Kristen is the last child that I expect to raise in my own home. But my affection for my son is a guide sometimes. Because when I feel like I ought to discipline or direct my son in a particular way, there are times where later I feel a correction in my spirit that comes from my own affection for him where I asked the question, if I treated him, you know, if I, if I were very, very sympathetic with him in whatever he's going through, if I'm very compassionate for him in whatever he's going through, how would I treat him? Would I come out the same place in this definition that I did before? And there are times that I have to revise my decisions as a father because I'll look back and say, you know what? If I were going to make a mistake, I'd rather make the mistake over here than to make the mistake over here. Do you know what I'm saying? And so here we see here that a church leader needs to be developing affection for his people. I'll never forget the time that I asked an elder at a church I ministered at in Minnesota why a man and his whole family had voted against They did congregational vote by raising of hands. Why did this man and his whole family vote against a motion that the church was voting on that day? There was no conversation in that church. That church was not a kind of church where people did a lot of sharing. And this elder that I spoke to said, what does it matter why? No matter what it is, he and his family can never get on board like everybody else. And one of the things that really struck me was that in that conversation with that elder... I didn't see Jesus' image of John 10, who knows his sheep and cares about those sheep, would lay down his life for the sheep. I did not hear the sense that the sheep knew him and would follow his voice. I didn't have a sense 
like we're reading in 1 Thessalonians 2, that he has a deep sense of affection and care for them and wants to be tender with those people like a nursing mother. You see how those things can be guides for leadership and can let us know when leadership is not inside the lines of affection and care that it needs to be in? This is much more important than it first appears. We live in a culture that diminishes the importance of relationship, emotion, affection, truthfulness, openness, transparency. We live in a culture that diminishes all those things as being unnecessary for business. And I have to say, sometimes when I hear people say, well, running a church is like running a business. There are parts of it that are true. You know, BGE doesn't give you power because you're working for the kingdom of God. You can't make a deal with BGE and say, well, what if our people came out and cleaned your windows and mopped your floors for you? Would, would you cover our electric bill that way? No, you have to think like a business and the people have to carry the work because that is true. But the church is not like a business when we think of this affection and this care. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God is also. Notice the positives here. How holy, the sense that God is near and He is watching. How righteous, I know this sounds redundant, but righteousness is always a word that refers to trying to do the right things. It's that simple. And blameless. That means free of the kinds of impurities that would be scandalous. How holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children. We talked about the mother. Now we're talking about the father. How like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. We encouraged each one of you. We charged you. Notice he uses three different kinds of language there. I came alongside. I comforted and consoled. I rallied you on. Dads are the ones that are supposed to say, you can do it, right? That's what dads are. Moms are supposed to say, don't, don't cross the street. Be careful. Look both ways. Dads are supposed to be the ones that go, jump, you know? And so there's part of each of that that should be in the leadership of a church. There should be a mom that comforts and nurses and takes care. There should be the exhortation of a father that says, you can do it. You can press forward. And you also, we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I'm going to stop here today because of the time but I want you to notice that that's the goal. Why have we talked about all this? What is the purpose of the work of God's Word Community Church? What is it that we're trying to do different than churches otherwise in our region? What are we shooting for? The Apostle is talking about how he lived among them so that they could do discipleship. How there were elements, extrinsic elements of passion and control that needed to be eliminated from their thinking. They had to have a constant awareness that God was present, watching and testing every single thing they should do. There is a positive outreach in terms of affection, encouragement, exhortation. Keep encouraging the people forward. Why? So the people can receive the Word of God. 
that word which is working in you. The word in Greek is energeo. You know any English words that sound like energeo? Our word energy comes from that. The word of God inside you is the, is the engine. It's the fuel. It's the thing that helps you grow, matures you, transforms you, takes you to the calling that God has given you. You can see why in Acts chapter 6, when the widows needed to be fed, the apostles said, we cannot leave the ministry of the word of God and of prayer. We need to find people who are reliable to take this food to the widows. We can't leave this ministry of the word of God and prayer behind. This is the purpose of the leadership of the church. To make sure that the ministry of the word of God and prayer comes to you. That you may feed on it. That you may be transformed by it. That as a community, we will in all ways grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, sometimes when we look at the pattern in your word, we can be struck with a sense of how far it is that we have to go. Lord, sometimes we're discouraged when we think, how far do we have to go and how long will it take to get there? And all of those thoughts come from us in our humanity because we keep thinking about it as if we were doing it ourselves. And what we learn here is that our goal is to be close to you, close to each other. That our goal is to take in your word, to be transformed by it, and to perform the calling that you have equipped us for. Lord, you are the subject of, you are the author of creation and transformation, not us. And we thank you for your willingness to work in us, to make us better than we are. We come to you in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.